From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 364. And today's show is brought to you by Pingdom, Text Expander from Smile, and Hello. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hi, Mike Hurley. It's good to hear you. Uh, it's good to have you here on Upgrade. It like normal, of course, perfectly normal. Always. Mm-hmm. Hashtag Snell Talk question comes from Instantiate This, who asks Jason: When you make hot tea, before drinking the tea, do you cool it down with ice cubes or water, or do you wait patiently for it to cool down, or can you just take burning hot tea? Wow, what a question! Mm-hmm. Um, ice cubes. I have I have done the ice cube thing. Okay, very, very, very rarely. It's generally when it's in a thermos or something where it's never going to get cooler. Yeah. But generally, well, first off, let me let me tell you again about the tea robot. I have this um, Breville automatic tea maker. Mm-hmm. So what you do is you put in the water and then you put the tea in a little basket and you press a button and it takes the water up to the target temperature and then lowers the basket into the water for a, a, for the target time. Mm-hmm. And then it lifts the basket back out because if you leave the tea in the water too long, it gets bitter and it's bad. And it beeps. And at that point, the tea is ready to drink, but it's also, um, whatever, four minutes off the boil. Uh, I am I rarely get up the moment that the tea maker beeps in order to go get the tea when it's that hot. I'll usually leave it a little bit. And it actually keeps it warm. It's got a its own threshold. And if the tea goes below that point, it will actually warm it back up to a nice hot temperature this is why i love the tea robot it's great so it's generally not a problem that the tea is the right temperature for me if i leave it too long it will get too cool and i'll actually have to microwave it in order to get it back up to an appropriate Mm. temperature but i i uh i have burned the roof of my mouth on tea that was too hot Uh, but generally i guess the answer here technically is wait patiently but a lot of times i'm not really waiting because i know that the the, I can be as patient as I want, and the tea will be a good temperature when I get to it because of my tea robot. That's my story. Have you ever considered one of those uh, heating mugs like the Ember mug? I have, and I got to be honest, I drink my tea so fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's I, rare. I, that, it's very yeah. rare that I, I think, oh, the rest of this mug is cold. I have to get distracted for that to happen. And when that happens, I'll generally go out, put more tea in the mug, and microwave it to get it back up to temperature. And it's it's basically it's solving a problem I rarely have. And when I do have that problem, um, oftentimes I can solve it by, uh, if I'm anticipating that I'm going to be keeping this tea for a while, um, uh, the thermal mugs, like the Relay FM one that you guys uh, sent oh, to hosts. Yeah, like- the Yeti, the ones, Yeti mug, right? and and when I um when I visit my mom in Arizona, I bought a giant one of those that I brew mm-hmm. my tea in, and then it's basically two plus mugs worth of tea in the giant one. And because it's it's uh it's insulated, it just stays hot. Uh, because then then it's two cups worth of tea that I'm drinking, and it takes it would cool down even more, but it doesn't because it's insulated. So it's just it's not um. It's just not a problem, but but it, this uh, was a great question because it allowed me to talk again about the wonders of the T-Robot, which seems like a ridiculous thing, and yet I, I love it. It is so great, uh, and we drink a lot of tea in this house. Neither my wife nor I drink coffee, so tea is the drink of choice every day. I make at least one pot, sometimes two in the, uh, in the T-Robot, and it's nice. The first, whoever gets up first in the morning, you know, feeds the dog, lets the dog out starts the tea, 
and then generally comes back to bed, and then we just let the tea make, and then at some point we get back up and the tea is ready. So it's pretty great. If you'd like to send in a question to help us open an episode of Upgrade, just send out a tweet with the hashtag SnellTalk, or use question mark SnellTalk in the Relay FM members Discord. So I'm returning the favor today. Yeah, in this, today's episode. This is the r- summer of fun. Uh, sorry, summer fun of, fun. of summer uh, reversal of yes. what we did when I went to Hawaii, which is you are going away. Yeah, I uh, am on a what has ended up being surprise last minute trip to mm. Romania. We we've been trying to book uh, to go to Romania for the best part of a month, and we've just kept having flight after flight canceled on us. And as it stands right now when we're recording this, uh, our flights are locked in. And so I'm going to be uh, away next week. Right. So This week. This week. This week as you're hearing this. Broadcast professionals. Week, as we're recording it. Yes. Uh, time. What does it mean? Because your wife's family is in Romania. Your wife is from Romania. Yes. So it's not yep. like you're so just like... my wife, Adina, grew up in Romania. I've we're been just desperate like, just to just take a to vacation to Romania. It's like, no, it's actually to see her family that she hasn't seen yep. in a, a long, a long time. Yeah. So uh, Jason was going to take over the episode. I was going to miss it all. And then I'd, what I've forgot, forgotten about, though, is that Apple's earnings report came out. Uh, did you remember that this had happened? I feel like everybody that I knew had completely forgotten again. Uh, somebody in the Six Colors Slack posted a note on Monday that said, so what are we thinking for Apple earnings? And I was like, oh, no. Good. So everybody <laughs> forgot, which is good. I like when everybody collectively forgets that a thing is happening. There's oh. something about... There's something about the last year of earnings reports that for some reason, everyone just keeps forgetting that they're occurring. I don't know yeah. why that is, but... I, uh, I put a, a note on my calendar for three months from like last week saying, check mm-hmm. for the uh, the results date. Good. Very good. <laughs> so that Very I can good. remember to actually do that. Usually I remember, but there's enough going on. I think, I think usually that alarm goes off inside my mind um, at the beginning of that month. Uh, I have a little internal timer that kind of goes, but I was on vacation, and so the, all timers uh, were snoozed, also timers were suppressed, so I just completely missed it. Um, but uh, so that was yeah, that was that was uh, a surprise. But it was fine. It was Monday afternoon, so I had a whole day to prepare. I did uh, have a couple of things that I moved around because I didn't realize I was committing to so many things on the day that I also was going to be spending all afternoon and evening working on Apple results stuff. Um, I. I uh, what I find charming about this is uh, you like talking about the Apple results on Upgrade with me so much anyway, that yep. you said let's do the pre-record because I don't yep. want to miss the conversation about Apple's results, which is very nice. It's not the it's not the the topic the recurring topic that I would have guessed is the one that would make you put the brakes on your vacation in order to. Uh, Discuss with well, me, but it's very this is not ironic. It's very nice. I I genuinely I, I know really enjoy this this time. If it was like, ironic, it, we I would have had a laugh it. about it, and then yeah. uh, wouldn't have recorded this episode. <laughs> so mm-hmm. here we are. I should be packing right now, but instead, I want to talk about Apple's third quarter earnings. So these are the headlines: eighty-one point four billion dollars in revenue. So, of course, beating every expectation. Mm. This is Apple's largest uh, third quarter in their history by quite a margin. This is 36% year-over-year growth for a third quarter. This was primarily driven by iPhone sales at $39.6 billion for the quarter. That is 50% year-over-year. I want to come back to the iPhone in a minute because there's obviously 
there's some stuff going on with that. Yeah. Uh, Mac sales, $8.2 billion, 16% year over year. iPad, 7.4, that's 12% uh, year over year gain. Wearables, home and accessories, $8.8 billion, 36% up. And services at $17.5 billion, that's 33% up. This is tied as Apple's largest year over year growth from a services quarter. Uh, with Q4 2017 being the last time they had this kind of growth. And to put that into perspective, it's because of Apple Music. Uh, Apple Music was taking off then, and App Store growth as well was what did that all the way back in 2017. Uh, The iPhone accounted for 49% of the revenue, which is pretty normal these days. It's like a little bit less than half. Uh, services is now twenty one was twenty one percent of revenue for the quarter, which is more than the Mac and iPad combined, which yeah. was quite a scary thing, I think, to look to see that. It was yeah. quite surprising to they're, me. They're comparable, right? But it's but it's yeah, it's twenty one percent for services and about nineteen percent for Mac and mm-hmm. iPad. Or uh, the other way you could do it is there's forty nine percent iPhone. Um uh, it's thirty percent wearables home accessories mac and ipad kind of the non-iphone hardware business and then 21 percent services uh apple are predicting that they will have some supply constraints for the next quarter and growth may not be as large in some areas yes Uh, although at the same time they gave they they refused to give give guidance and then they gave guidance, which yep. is something that I mentioned yep. in my story on MacWorld about this because MacWorld has me write a like uh, a reaction story afterward every Great year. Story. Or, I love that every story. Quarter. It's a fun mm-hmm. story. I I get to sit there and think, how do I write the same thing with different numbers every time? And it's always like it's an interesting challenge mentally about that. But but here's the thing: is they said they would have strong double digit year over year revenue growth next quarter. And it would be less than this quarter's 36% year-over-year growth, which to me mm-hmm. sounds kind of like really broad guidance, which means next quarter is going to be between 71 and $88 billion. It probably, um, you know, very strong double-digit means it's above $71 billion by some amount. But like, however you uh, slice it, they're forecasting another record quarter next quarter that their fourth fiscal quarter will also be a record so for all of the things we're going to get into about the ways where they sort of said you know watch out there are some shortages they're still confident enough to predict basically another record so then they didn't predict any shortages for the mac seems like that the issues that they were having for mac stuff has resolved itself which is interesting especially because i guess at some point we're expecting new ones so that they're yeah. Shoring that up. I had a I had a thought about that, which is I wonder if the reason that they're not expecting Mac shortages is because they are they know they're delaying some of their Mac products, right? Yes. Like if if we've got the the story about the new MacBook Pros and how that they've been they had con- some constraints and they delayed them, let's assume that they delayed them into this next quarter or the quarter after. But they are, they're building up demand, or I mean, they're building up supply. So then it would it would be out it would not be out of balance, right? Because they feel like they're confident enough now that they can get enough of those that they would sell over the next three months. Keeping in mind that we're in that quarter now. That's July, August, September, and that means that even if they came out, I mean, would they even come out with that laptop in that quarter? Um, so maybe it's delayed until the following quarter, and therefore yeah. there are no Mac problems. And, and also they, they have a run-up to maybe build those so that when they do release them, they'll have enough to sell through. So I'm not sure. And, and, and they may be thinking, right, that's one way you talk about staying 
uh, imbalance is you delay things and then they don't get released and then there's no demand <laughs> for you to fail to fulfill supply. It's it's you know there's a lot of tricks you can do with the way that you talk and about. Yeah, there may be reduced. Um, uh, they might be selling less because that people might be aware that there's new sure. ones on the horizon. Right, which also line. lets you keep in balance, right? Because your demand mm-hmm. drops temporarily because people are waiting for the new thing. And that's good because you're having trouble building and supplying anything. Uh, and the net result is that you're back in supply-demand balance for the Mac. But, um, but yes, so it's more complicated, but they didn't call out the Mac. They continue to call out the iPad, though, and they added the big one. They said that the iPhone is going to be supply-constrained, at least somewhat, which is something. You see, something that you noted in your article was potentially another October release which could be what they're hinting at. However, my my kind of feeling is if they think they're going to have year over year growth, I think that it will sh- it, you will start seeing yeah. them on sale in September, but not in high numbers. This is my guess. If they're saying the iPhone is going to be supply constrained, one scenario that's pretty strong is that they're going to do their early September announcement and they're going to ship them late September, which means mm-hmm. that some iPhone sales will be in this quarter that we're currently in. And what they're saying is, you know, they won't be able to ship enough of them in this quarter. And so those will get pushed to the following quarter. And will will they be supply constrained that quarter too? I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Um, it, it's interesting, though, because that, that is Apple trying to put a little bit of uh, limitation on industry, you know, Wall Street uh, exuberance about iPhone sales. Where they're saying it's it's a neat trick because it's really like, look, people want to buy the iPhone, but we may not be able to to get them the iPhone. So just be warned. But we're still gonna we're still gonna break records. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's kind of a mess. I, but I do think that it could possibly be true that they won't ship these iPhones until until October. It's also like the truth is that unless you get an iPhone the first week maybe that it's out if it ships in September the rest of those sales are in the holiday quarter which is why the holiday mm-hmm. quarter is so big it's you know most iPhone sales are probably not in late September they're in early October i would think through the holiday so let's let's go back to the iPhone okay. uh, with the sales that they've just done. When I saw the numbers, right, my initial reaction was like, oh, yeah, of course, because the iPhone was delayed. And then realized, oh, hang on a minute. That was last quarter. They want, like The demand wasn't necessarily for this quarter. So did you, if you're to, just to try and back up what I'm saying, you know, because the iPhone came late, we knew that there was going to be a quarter where they were going to have the majority of their sales. So it was going to be in the Q2 earnings because that was when the iPhone was actually available. Like them having sold as many iPhones as they have right now, that 50% year over year, that isn't what I was expecting. I don't think many people were expecting this to happen based on previous trends. And Ben Thompson wrote a really great post on Trajectory in his daily update where he was kind of helping to to frame this because one of the places that they've seen such great growth is in China uh, because for a couple of reasons. One, this is a new design with the larger size, right? So that's like, this is, you know, it's got the flat sides, larger size, that kind of flat size, larger size, that kind of thing. But also in China, it's expected and it's been just being seen that Apple is picking up space left by Huawei. Huawei was Apple's main competitor in China, but because Huawei cannot use Android anymore, they're losing customers, and Apple seems to be picking them up. 
and something like it was really interesting, especially because Ben's done so much report, like so much in-depth analysis about the iPhone 6, right? If you will remember, the iPhone 6 was when they introduced the big one. That was when they had that huge, explosive year-over-year growth and then kind of felt the pain of that for the years following because it seemed like, wow, the iPhone's just going to go bigger and bigger and bigger to the moon. But then in previous years, it went down a bit again because, and and if and as we've always said, if you take the iPhone 6 out of the year-over-year growth, you can see like a good curve for the iPhone always going up. Mm-hmm. But that iPhone 6 year was an anomaly. We could be in another one of those years right now with the iPhone 12. It's possible. I think what's interesting, and, and you're right, this is reminiscent of the iPhone 6, and Ben is right. Um, what I find really fascinating is, you know, the holiday quarter always is huge for iPhone revenue. And so you end up with that quarter being, you know, 53.8 billion, 61.1 billion. They had a 52 billion. That was a quieter quarter. Uh, that was the holidays of of 2018. It's the first quarter of 2019 for Apple. But then 56 billion and 65.6 billion. What's really interesting to me is that I think I think we are seeing something that is like the iPhone 6 spike, but because of COVID, it's flattened out. And the way the reason I say this is because normally there's a much larger drop between the holiday quarter in iPhone sales mm-hmm. and the next three quarters than there was this year. And I think what happened there <laughs> is that some iPhone sales that were would have happened in the holiday quarter people put off. They're like, I don't need a new phone right now. But then the next two quarters, the next six months after the holidays, first half of, of 2021, um, those quarters, iPhone sales were huge, like way bigger than your your normal Q2 and Q3 are. And so I think that's the truth of it, right? Is that is that we are seeing a, a sales spike here. It's just not quite as dramatic if you're just looking quarter to quarter um, and not realizing that, that you know, other than the year-over-year growth for those quarters. Like, I, another way to frame this would be, um, this was a 50% year-over-year increase, and the previous quarter was a 66% year-over-year increase. So these are real outliers. And I think the reason is that they there are actually some sales that rolled over from the first quarter. So, so yeah, they sold. They have sold a, an enormous number of iPhones in the last three quarters, and that's uh, so. So that opens up the questions. Like iPhone six was great, but it also created kind of a hangover for Apple. Mm-hmm. It reset. It reset the the bar really high. And Apple sells more iPhones. They're like it's peak iPhone. It's like wait two years and three years maybe, and they're selling more iPhones three years later than they were. That, that thing that looked like an outlier, right? Because the growth keeps going up. But there is that question of like, is there going to be uh, an iPhone hangover again where everybody bought? And in the call with analysts, you know, Tim, Tim Cook basically said, we think we have a lot of growth here still ahead of us because of 5G and that there's a 5G rollout that's still in its earliest days. And we think 5G is going to drive people to buy uh 
new phones. So the idea there is that it's not just that this is a new phone design that people like, but that the 5G part of it is going to, you know, and there's a downside to that too, right? You know, they're excited about it now. When 5G's rollout is sort of complete, they're going to be casting around for the next thing and they will have sold a bunch of phones to people who hang on to their phones for five years and they're not going to be able to get those sales again for five years. And that's going to make the sales take a little bit of a hit and everybody's going to go, oh no, iPhone sales. Uh, but it's it's sort of fascinating to watch that little dance because they're 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 selling a lot of iPhones right now. It's it's quite shocking how many they've sold in the last three quarters. And it honestly was therein that the scales fell from my eyes, and I understand why Apple made such a big deal about five G in the first place with the iPhone twelve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're... they have identified that five G could help them sell a lot more iPhones than a, than a typical feature That's would. It. Because that, that's it. now, now you need a new phone to get the new technology. You know, I'm sure that this is what they saw happen when we got LTE, and now they're like, well, now all these customers have been holding onto their phones for three or four years. Maybe they're going to be inclined to get one in the next year or two. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, you understand why they've gone so ham on 5G. Right, like this is the thing that's going to save Tim from needing to come up with another services. Like Apple focused on services so much because of what happened with the iPhone six, right? Like that's how I look at that. Like they were being asked time and time again, "Well, now the iPhone growth is stalling. What have you got? What have you got?" And their answer was "Uh, services. And if they have another one of these with this, right? Like if they they end up having an iPhone six thing, well, they're going to need another answer to well, oh, well, iPhone sales are decreasing year over year now because you had that big blip. What are you going to do? Uh, but I think the answer this time is well, the iPhone sales are going to continue. We think because of five G. Yeah, that's his answer. We'll see. Mm-hmm. You know, there always has to be another one, right? The, this will last for as long as it lasts, and then they'll have to yep. do it. But that's that's his argument. He also said in there that he thinks that some people in places where there aren't 5G rollouts yet uh, view uh, an iPhone with 5G as a good, like a safe upgrade because they know that it's already got the 5G built in, which I think is a good point, right? Like we rarely see in the US and the UK and in, in the, those core countries that get all this stuff first, we rarely see that. But in other countries, you have this ability to be like, well, we don't have 5G here yet, but if I buy this phone when it comes here, I'll be ready, right? And that's that can be a, it's a future proofing of a sort for somebody in a country that doesn't currently have a 5G rollout, but it is coming in the next couple of years. And that can be enough to motivate someone to buy a new iPhone. Hey, Mike, remember when we used to watch the iPad numbers and just kind of like grit our teeth and be like, it's coming it's back not eventually. Worry anymore. It's coming back eventually. It is. They, they actually called it out in the call and they said that the iPad has reached, they didn't say all time heights, but it's like heights not seen in a decade, which is like there was that initial huge iPad sales surge in like 2011, 2012, um, 2011 kind of. And that's that's uh, where they are. Like it's the iPad sales, even though it was twelve percent up year over year, but it was up over a monster year over year quarter. And like, just the iPad is now kind of on a growth train. It seems to me they're selling a lot of iPads now too. So the iPad is has gone yeah. from being sort of our, our sad like, but I like the iPad. Why is nobody buying it? To kind of yet another Apple product machine. And I love that. Like, I love that. I mean, that I don't even have to think about it anymore. Like, I don't feel like I need to use the the revenue charts as a way to explain why the product's important. Like, it's just, it just continues to grow now. They've hit their stride again. And it's not 
this like these monster bumps, right? Like just I mean, they, they had that one, right? So Q two, but we all know when that happened. But if you look past the previous year, it's just been good year over year, consistent growth with good products to show for it. Yeah, and I'm very happy to see that because that's what you want to happen, right? That they put the work in and make the product better, they sell more of them, and that's it. Seems so simple. It doesn't always work like that, and I'm just happy that it did. And on the Mac side, they called it out. I, I've been talking about this for the last couple of quarters, but like, it's now the the last four quarters of Mac sales are the four highest quarters of Mac sales ever. So you think about seasonality, and you get that you get that uh, quarter where they do a lot of Mac sales, usually where there's a bunch of new Macs coming out, and it it, it varies. The Mac is not seasonal in the same way that the iPhone and, and is and the iPad to a certain degree, but like. You look at the charts, and it's just four enormous quarters in a row. Four quarters, way larger, not even a little bit, but like by more than a billion dollars, larger than any Mac quarter before uh, Q4. So uh, of uh, of twenty of twenty twenty, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's just staggering that those four quarters. So the Mac. And and what what Apple does is just lays it all on the M1. They're like, people love the M1. <laughs> Look at how awesome we are. We made the chip and everybody loves it. Uh, people love the M1. And they, even with the iPad, they're like, people love the M1 and the iPad too. The M1 is magic, basically, is what they're saying. But I kind of can't argue. They said this time they were rolling the, the new iMac sales were rolling into this and selling really well too. So, uh, you know, just basically all happy news on Mac and iPad fronts on this. So it's nice. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom from SolarWinds. If you have a website, what purpose does it serve? Whether it's to drive people to your products, collect sales leads for your company, or provide customer service of a contact form, when you have these critical transactions fail, you lose out on your business. Not to mention a bad experience for users. But there's a solution, transaction monitoring from Pingdom. Starting at just $10 a month, transaction monitoring runs checks 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and it will alert you immediately when cart checkouts, forms, or login pages fail before they affect your customers and your business. Pingdom can notify you the moment there is a failure over SMS, email, or via your favorite apps like Slack, Ops Genie and PagerDuty. Depending on what's being monitored or the severity of the outage, you can customize who's alerted and how they get the notification. Don't let your users discover a problem with your website. You want to be the first to know, and it's so easy to get started. Just go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM for the 30-day free trial with no credit card required. Then when you're ready to buy, use the code UPGRADE at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. That's pingdom.com slash RelayFM for a 30-day free trial, and the code UPGRADE at checkout for 30% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom from SolarWinds for their support of this show and RelayFM. Mike's gone, but Julia Alexander from Parrot Analytics is here. Julia is... One of my favorite smart people on the internet to write about streaming media. And Mike and I talk about that on our upstream segment all the time. And I thought I would go uh, replace Mike with somebody who uh, really has smart thoughts about this. She used to be at Ver- The Verge and Polygon and IGN. And now it's like you were already my favorite uh, streaming media analyst. And now it's your job. So welcome, Julia. Thank you so much for the kind words. It is a true honor to be here. It's great to have you. You were on uh, my old uh, download podcast, and you've been on uh, on some other Relay podcasts over the ages. Rocket, I think, a few times. Yeah, yeah, love it's the a, Rocket. It's a wild yeah. ride over there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to start by talking to you about this big news that's happened in this last week, which is Scarlett Johansson suing Disney 
saying that Disney induced Marvel. It's a, I love it. Disney induced Marvel to break her contract in terms of paying her. Uh, she gets money for ticket sales and theatrical releases, and they put uh, Black Widow on Disney Plus in their $30 uh, special access window and the lawsuit basically says they are cheating her out of uh, money by not releasing it properly uh, in theaters exclusively and this is you know there are, there's been a lot of analysis out there that I think is interesting about like is it a strong case or not she presumably had arbitration with Marvel so the, it, they're trying to do like an end run around by suing Disney and also making a stink in public I think and uh, and this, but it's also fascinating, right? Because this goes to the heart of the question of like what a theatrical release is going to look like versus streaming. Does this completely invalidate how the talent involved in Hollywood has gotten paid in the past? And and so, what do you think? What was your reaction when you saw this uh, this lawsuit news come out? Immediately, it just felt inevitable. Perhaps not necessarily Scarlett being the person to take on Disney, the corporation, but it felt inevitable in the sense that this has been a brewing battle with um, arguably less public kind of guilds, less public positions. But the writers in Hollywood have said for years that they are missing out on on financial opportunities because of the way that streaming services um, work out the payment structure. We've heard producers kind of say similar things. And now the next kind of big step in here was was getting A-list talent who the public can kind of sympathize with in a way because they know these people, they know these faces um, to say, hey, we are getting, you know, kind of screwed out of our money on the on the side of things because we are no longer tied to the theatrical box office and the percentage that kind of comes from those deals. Um, so my immediate reaction, other than this being inevitable in the sense that this is where we were always headed over the last year, two years, um, was this is even more important than this case is the ramifications that come from this case, right? And like Johansson is the first real major celebrity to go up against a major studio. Um, she's going to be far from the last, but but the floodgates, you know, that were once really trying not to crack under this building pressure of a brewing battle between the talent and the agencies and the unions against the studios have opened. And so now we're in the domino effect moment. Right. Because this is, you know, this goes back forever. The idea of uh, Hollywood bookkeeping, cheating directors and writers and stars out of money um, that they are owed. And, you know, famously, the most successful TV shows and movies in history are on the books is basically breaking even or taking a loss because that way they don't have to pay people who have a profit percentage. But with this, you know, if you if you figured that, okay, box office receipts, we, we can all agree on that. This is how we can compensate people as a share of the gross. Um, with streaming, not only does that upset the idea of box office receipts, but also it, it upsets the idea that there's something that's public and verifiable about the success of anything, right? You, Netflix is more open than they used to be about streaming success, but essentially, once you're on a streamer, your success is invisible. It doesn't mean that they don't know exactly how many streams there were. It means that there's no third party to verify that they're paying you what you're owed. And like, I don't, I'm not quite sure what the solution is here, but, but at least we're going from a situation where the box office was more or less verifiable to a situation where um, talent is going to have to trust the studios. And I, I just don't think that's ever, they're never going to trust them. No, and I think the most important kind of victor already in this very specifically PR kind of approach to the lawsuit, which is to get it out there and to their goal, you know, I, I assume Disney will try to settle at this point because it's a very it's very public. At the same time, 
who knows, you would have assumed they would have tried to settle already. And I know there's been reports that they just didn't respond to Johansson and her kind of contacts. Yeah. That's, um, if, if that report is accurate, that's amazing, right? That they that they actually emailed her people and said, if we go to a, a digital release, we will talk to you about compensation and then apparently radio silence. That's amazing if that's what happened. Right. And there's been reports, <laughs> which I mean, I think a lot of people who work in the entertainment industry, whether uh, on the reporter side, especially have kind of heard these rumors and uh, Matt Bellany reported it. He used to be at the Hollywood Reporter. He's got a great newsletter now for a puck. He reported it last night about this idea that, you know, Kevin Feige and, and has been going up against Disney and saying he doesn't want day and date. Like he said that from the very beginning, he wants it for a stars to go into movies. Um, but the, the issue is while he has to answer to his talent side and creating what he's doing on the Marvel side and to an extent, you know, report to the Bobs, Bob Chapek, the current CEO and Bob Iger, executive chairman and former CEO, the Bobs have to appeal to the board and they have to appeal to their shareholders. And they, they got to grow Disney plus they got to grow Disney plus bottom line. Right. And that's the bottom line. And I think to your exact point where the box office was a tangible public form of success uh, or failure or, or missed uh, opportunity. I think we could look at it and say, you know, uh, I think, the domestic total is still about 160 million right now for Black Widow. So, you know, that and F9 is much, has been out much longer and F9 is hitting 165. So there's a conversation where if we did 90 days in theaters, would people actually go and see Black Widow? My analysis is that wouldn't be the case. I do think Black Widow in day and day cannibalizes some of the theatrical revenue. There's no doubt about that. And I do think it leads to a much higher and easier form of piracy plus account sharing and all that other stuff um, at the same time if disney if having black widow and disney plus led to additional revenue and led to an increase in subscriptions that disney feels confident enough to talk about at their earnings call which will make wall street very happy then disney wins but what i, I think what we're going to see is the agencies get involved the unions will get involved and say hey you want our talent the reason that talent likes the box office is because we can point to a leonardo dicaprio movie and say Leo carried the movie. You know, Je Jennifer Lawrence is the reason people are going to see this. Chris Hemsworth, Robert Downey Jr., Scarlett Johansson. And so when CAA or whomever's representing them in the act and SAG AFTRA and, and all the other unions are going, we need this public thing to ensure that our, our, our talent is getting paid the what they deserve. That's when we're going to start seeing the studios really kind of come out and go, okay, we'll figure out how to translate this into public demand because they have to appease the studios. The worst thing they could do is is piss off SAG-AFTRA and then all of a sudden you've got no actors to work with. Yeah, and and I I think there's a way to to look at this and say that the this is really just about negotiating what the new world is going to be because I imagine if they went to Scarlett Johansson and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to release this in theaters and simultaneously on Disney Plus, but we're going to charge $30 a head uh, per account to watch this, right? Not not per person, but per account. And th $30, that's the equivalent of, you know, three or four, however you want to calculate it. We could agree on a number of box office receipts. And you know that by doing the premiere access on Disney+, Plus, we're going to lose week three, week four, week five box office in theaters because it's going to be gone. Everybody will just, those are people who are getting around to seeing it and instead they'll just pay $30 and watch it on Disney+. Plus. Um, and then you agree, like, how much money do you need a larger percentage of the theatrical and what's your percentage and how do you um, how do you kind of audit it for the premier access revenue, right? Like, I feel like there's probably a negotiation to be had there to get everybody on the same page. The challenge here seems to be that they didn't have it. 
Yeah, I mean, we this is exactly the cha- the Jason Kyler Warner Media debacle, right? Like this right. was why they reportedly had to pay two hundred million extra in back end because they were saying, yeah, we know that we're cannibalizing some of it. We know that your agreement with your producers and our team is to get some kind of percentage tied to the box office or, or you know, whatever, and it hits this level of, of box office revenue, you get this amount of money. Um, so I think that, that's just the big thing that's going to come out of this is it is going to shift the way that uh, contracts are negotiated, the way they are drawn up, the way that they are agreed upon. And if you're Disney, that's something that you're going to take into account pretty quickly if you're any major studio, because if you have a non-Marvel project, you have like a, a Sleeping Beauty or uh, whatever it may be, you want a very a well-known actor in that role you want that to bring because that talent demand brings people into theaters it brings them into disney plus premier access but what you're going to do going forward is you're going to go yeah no problem we're going to put that to the contract and we negotiate it that way i think what was really interesting about the two sides was that scar uh scar joe's team really did not touch upon covid they they addressed it they said obviously there was a reason that we did it this way um but they purposely said you know we were kind of guaranteed this theatrical release and we kind of got it but not really and what disney's going to try to do legally is say hey we tried to the best of our abilities under extreme situations where we were you know our, our shareholders were uh, worried about their revenue they delayed we're it a year wait yeah wait we did a whole bunch of things here's our delays here's we're still putting it in theaters you're still on 1500 screens across the country uh we actually held up that end of the deal that whether or not the judge goes, yeah, you actually did what you needed to do, or, or you know what, no, you probably should have had negotiations will be interesting. But what I think what Scarlett and the team want more than anything else is for this to get to discovery in court. They want mm-hmm. the emails between Bob and Bob to come out or Bob and Kevin that say, yeah, you know what, we'll just take the hit on on this from the talent side and we need to please our, our board. So we'll yeah. see how that goes. It seems to me that what's going to happen is that Disney's going to try to get this sent to arbitration. And if they fail, they'll settle because they do not want discovery to happen in a case like this, right? Those To get those emails out there, that is the worst case scenario for anybody in the entertainment industry. Oh, yeah, I mean, well, look at what happened with Epic and Apple, right? It was yeah. just, that's what that- Yeah, it's not- not not good not good i want to i want to uh take a, a little different angle here cuz you mentioned what happened with jason kalar and uh and warner media and taking all of their movies and putting them on hbo max and having to yeah again you're you're compensating people based on theatrical receipts that no longer exist how do you do that because obviously what you're getting out of it is you're building your streaming service which is fine but they they aren't getting you know stock in warner media they need to get paid um this is, and I used to talk about this when I did the TV Talk Machine podcast with Tim Goodman. I used to talk about this all the time, which is um, talent in Hollywood. Like, we act like money is everything, and money is super important to them. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes you get the sense that they also want love and appreciation, and that sometimes uh, the relationships are founded on on not just money, but also appreciation. I bring that up because like Christopher Nolan was really sad about HBO Max uh, and Tenet, but like Christopher Nolan, you know, he was sad about the money, but he was also sad about the movie theaters. It was both. And I hear this, uh, Tim always talked about how people who made stuff for Netflix, one of the problems is Netflix wants to pay you. They pay you upfront. So you don't have to worry about like how well it does. They're just going to write you a check. But if it does really well, uh, you don't get an upside, right? It's just you, you. We paid you. We're we're done, and also the feeling that Netflix creates so much content that your stuff just gets lost and not marketed. And and I I wonder 
if part of what's going on with Scarlett Johansson is this kind of recalibration of like how talent in Hollywood is valued beyond just cash, but also like how they're treated um, and are they going to be under the thumb of these studios who are building 21st century, you know, long-term 21st century value with these streaming services, or are they going to be paid compensated for helping them build the value? So I, I wonder, you know, how much of this is, is about that larger question of it's not just the money. It is the money. Don't get me wrong, but it's also the disrespect. I think that is an inherently important part of the conversation. I think it is the reason that if Christopher Nolan leaves Warner Brothers, he's not likely to go to a Netflix. He's more likely to go to, even though they have less money, even though they have a a tighter budget restriction, go to a Sony where uh, Tom Rothman can kind of sell this beautiful romanticized idea of what Hollywood is, where Tom Rothman believes in being a director's director and actor's actor. and, And he really loves this idea of what the industry is and could still be. Um, I think that ties into a debate that happened with executives, you know, a few years ago, and it's still kind of ongoing, but really brought on by the MCU and kind of everything that came out of that trend uh, was this idea of do movie stars matter or is it IP, right? And that, that conversation about if you put any person into a Marvel movie, will it still make money because it's a Marvel movie yeah. versus did Iron Man work because it had Robert Downey Jr. and Gwyneth Paltrow and, and that just made a lot of sense from a, from a, an A-list star perspective. So not not to get all all uh, baseball on you for a minute, but in, in sports, they have this concept in baseball, especially of the replacement player. And that's kind of what you're saying here, which is imagine a Marvel movie with no stars. The only star is Marvel. How does that movie do? And then I put a star in it how does that movie do? And the difference there is the value beyond just, you know, doing the job, the value of star power, of appeal, of having a headliner. And it's kind of unmeasurable, but it's super important because, uh, you know, it, Marvel will argue Marvel is the star, right? But if they tried to do that with Robert Downey Jr., they would not get very far. Yeah. And I think what you have from one end of the of the stick is people, um, and I don't know if this is just my assumption, but you have people at Disney who are like, we are selling Marvel or selling Star Wars. We will find actors that we like and who we believe in to put in those roles. You've got someone like Kevin Feige who truly likes actors. Like, he loves actors. He believes in the importance of them to making the characters work. Um, and so if you're fighting that battle, if you're Scarlett Johansson, the demand for Scarlett Johansson in a movie, so the demand for Black Widow as a character is more important to a lot of fans than, um, you know, insert kind of random new Marvel title. Then Scarlett goes, yeah, like, I feel like after nine movies with this company and, and, and 10, 11 years, I should not have had to deal with it this way. But I think that's where you have the Jason and Kyler situation come in, where Jason goes, we know basically we screwed up. I mean, that's what the $200 million is. He knows He's talked publicly about saying, you know, I wish I could have gone back and had given people more than 20 minute heads up saying we're going to do this thing. I mean, in part because one talent does want to be in theaters. They want to know that their movies are there. It's why, you know, Martin Scorsese works with Netflix, but Netflix was like, we're going to put your movies on a theater screen because we know you like that. Um, I think there there are other directors, there are other actors who might not care about it as much. They just want their movie to be seen as widely as possible. And in some right. cases, that's streaming. And that's like, that's why. When I say they want to be loved, and, and I know that that sounds a little bit like a joke, but I'm I'm serious. But it's a bunch of things, right? It's I want you to appreciate my art and put it where I want, or it's I want people to see it, and I need to know that people are seeing it, or it's I want to have a good relationship with the executive. There are lots of it's a spectrum of I want to be loved, but I think it's right. Like this is the 
I, I was blown away because Netflix is riding so high and that Tim Goodman would say there are a lot of people who don't want to work with Netflix because they'll take the check if they have to, but they'd rather work somewhere that's going to show them love. And that by love, they tend to mean like marketing and promotion and like things that maybe if you're just in the in the in the tube coming out every week from Netflix, you don't get. And and, you know, they want their money, but they do want that attention and, and respect. Well, I think that's the word I was just going to use. The, it's the lack of respect. When we Again, this is like hardly the first case of this. We had uh, John Krasinski and Emily Blunt who were in negotiations with um, Paramount. But what happened with A Quiet Place Part 2 where that went straight after 45 days and that wasn't part of the deal. Um, you've got, right. you've got these, these conversations happening with writers and directors who are... And then you know, you've got this conversation happening with... Um, uh, I'm bringing the studio legendary legendary who was going to sue Warner brothers according to deadline, because they were like, you can't just do this. Our, a bunch of what we promise our actors is tied into what goes out in the box office. It's how we value ourselves. We like to have our big blockbusters on a big screen. So you have Dune and you have, um, I forget the other one they had uh, Godzilla. It's like, they want to be in theaters. The executives, I get where they're coming from. They're in the middle of a pandemic. They are losing billions of dollars. Right. They need something to show shareholders that everything is going to be okay. So even though Disney Plus or HBO Max is far from profitable, they can t- point to it and go, we've got, you know, if you're Disney, we've got 100 plus million subscribers across our suite of movies. That's right. Uh, streaming services, excuse me. We're going to put movies there. We're going to draw people there. They throw around terms like ARPU and all of a sudden everyone's oh, yeah. We're waiting. building shareholder value. You know, that's the most important thing right now, except if you're the talent making the movies and you're, you're you know, you don't get the shareholder value out of it. You just get your your pay for your box office receipts. And that's what I, that's exactly what I think this moment is. This is, I think this was the moment everyone was waiting for. It was like, who will be the first person to really take on this, a major studio? So not just a, a tinier studio. That's going like, oh, well, they're, you know, maybe a little bit boutique and they can't really afford it. It's, it's no, this is Disney. They're a massive, massive conglomeration. This is a A-list celebrity. Uh, and so I think we will see more of these follow suit pretty quickly. I want to ask uh, a little bit broader question about this. Um, and, and in a little bit, I want to kind of do a streamer check-in and just ask about all the streaming services and where you where you think they are right now, because you've got some fascinating research and you've written some interesting things about it. But while we're on the subject of this big change to what is a movie and day and date and streaming and all of that. We got a question a few weeks ago from a listener about why Pixar's movies got booted to Disney plus just straight up while black widow and Mulan were premier access. And, you know, I'm curious if you've got any insight into sort of like why they've taken some movies and just kicked them directly onto the service. Obviously, that builds shareholder value. Um, and, and is it the contracts? My initial thought was like, maybe it's just that those contracts weren't as big a deal to pay the people off who made the movie versus what they do for uh, something like Black Widow. And then, you know, broad, more broadly, like, where do you think movie releases are going to end up in terms of do you do a hybrid? Do you do a premier access kind of hybrid? Do you do a shorter window? But why don't we start with Pixar? Do you have any insight into sort of like, why, why was it easy for them to take what, two or three Pixar releases and just kick them onto Disney Plus for free? Yeah, I mean, so I think there's a twofold answer. One is 100% contractual. I, there's always the legal answer, which is, can we do this without very little ramification? Okay, great. Pixar's but- contracts are probably pretty limited in terms of people getting a percentage of the gross, right? Since it's mostly the creative team is just a Pixar employee and then they've just got voice talent, which is probably a lot easier to negotiate, I would think. 
Yeah, but I think the second and the more important and the more, um, you know, kind of bluntly obvious thing is uh, Pixar does not, you think of a, a Pixar movie that's not an, a sequel, so it's not a known IP. And the idea is that are people going to pay 30 bucks for that? Maybe. Are they going to go to theaters? Maybe. But will people pay for a thing like Mulan? Will they pay for a Cruella? Will they pay for right. um, any of these kind of movies? So known that are- quantity own quantity and versus so taking go. a flyer on a random Pixar movie. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the, the really interesting one was uh Ryan, the last dragon, cause that was premier access and they tried it out. It was not a known entity. It was a new Disney animation movie. They put it on Disney plus and it did pretty well, if I remember correctly, uh, based on the trade reporting uh, for Disney. And I think that was something that Bob Chapek had spoken to when he said, you know, we're, we're not displeased by any means with what we're seeing on Premiere Access. Whether or not that means they're over the moon, we don't know. Uh, but I think it was enough of an experiment for them that they could go, yeah, we're seeing how things play out. And I, I think he said um, perfectly for Disney it, and to answer that question in his earnings call when he said it's an experimentation for us. All of Premiere Access is all of Disney pluses. They're figuring out right. from their data what works, what doesn't. So I, I imagine part of them went Pixar movies are the type of movies that will get parents to watch things with their kids and then rewatch. And so that increases engagement. Right. For Puts us. it in the library. The, 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 library. the beauty of Disney plus is having that library. All the Pixar movies are there. We like the engagement. We like what, you know, what streaming companies love to look at is, will this movie lead to you watching other movies versus you leaving the service after just watching it. So they go, cool. We put this on here. Something like soul is a perfect Christmas movie. You mm-hmm. charge people $30. There it is. And that's how they kind of wrap it up in marketing. Um, versus, yeah, we have a $200 million movie in Mulan. We've got a $150 million movie in Cruella, right. big stars. We want to put this in theaters and those contracts are probably much harder to renegotiate. Right. And, and the money, I, I tried to explain this to somebody who said, who, who asked me like, why don't they just put everything on streaming in the future? And the answer is they could do that. And maybe they will do that. The problem is you can't make a $200 million movie and just drop it on streaming. The, you can, COVID aside, right? And that changes things. Like the economics, these are these are priced, these are budgeted for an enormous theatrical release and a, an enormous theatrical box office. And, you know, if you want a Marvel movie that's direct to Disney Plus, it's going to be like those TV shows. It's going to look nice, but it's not going to be a $200 million product. So I guess my question for you, and I know this is we, we're still in the midst of COVID stuff. Where do you think this is going to end up in terms of what's what is your standard theatrical release look like and how is that different? Um, post post COVID, but also post everybody having their own streaming service. Is it just they're going to narrow the window or do you think that they're going to try this hybrid approach of like, well, you can watch it in your home if you want, but it's just going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost what it would cost for you to go out and see it. Yeah, there's going to be two big changes and then one smaller change that we won't even notice. The biggest change that we'll see to the actual theatrical experience is that it will go from 90 day exclusive to 45, which sounds like a lot, except that when you actually run the numbers, I did this recently for Marvel, but it's true across the board. Uh, if you take something like Marvel, which has 23 or 24 films, 96 point something percent of those movies make the majority of their revenue. And I mean, 98% of their revenue within three to four weeks. So they're going, yeah, we're going to be in theaters for 45 days, which is exactly when we would make 98% of our money. And then we're going to put on Disney plus, or we're going to put it on Amazon prime video first. We're going to try to go out there for 20 bucks and rent. And then once that's done, we'll come to Disney Plus and figure out what we do there. Whether or not they move that around, who knows. But the theaters and the studios are basically going, acknowledging what they need to acknowledge, which is their 45 days is exactly when people are going to go see a movie, if they're going to go see a movie for the most part. 
So from the theater perspective, you go, okay, how do we fill in the blanks if we no longer have this playing for 90 days? And like, that's what you're seeing with uh, AMC right now in the specialty theaters like Alamo, which is when they're doing UFC events, they partner with other people, they do like Grand Prix, they do the World Cup. They go, yeah, have the communal experience of a movie, pay for this, rent a theater to watch something, and we have that. Um, the second thing that we're already seeing is that, you know, people like to kind of publicly criticize this, and I get where they're coming from, and the shift will happen, we just won't hear about it, is this idea of going, okay, this movie that we made, it was supposed to have a theatrical release, is now going streaming exclusive. No real extra pay, but it's going streaming exclusive. This will continue to happen. We just won't hear about it. And the difference is, is they're going to make these kind of mid-tier budget movies that would be independent type films for the most part coming from the, the studio arms that are not just like Warner Brothers, not just you know Disney proper. Um, and those will be, will be available for free and they'll still get marketing play, but they won't cost as much. And then they'll bring you into your streaming service or they'll, or they'll keep you there. And we're seeing it happen. I mean, like Warner Brothers started a line then they closed it, but they're basically doing it to make 10 to 12 mid uh, uh, tier budget movies a year. Disney will take their kind of live action remakes that weren't really going, like that were maybe risky and they'll move that to Disney plus and they'll find other stuff. There's a world in which um, Disney makes kind of lower, I don't say lower end, but just less costly Marvel type movies or Star Wars type movies that are not TV shows. Maybe they're a one-off and they exist there. Um, and they just play into that world. And then so the you, end third- up, you end up with these this tiered system of you've got your big blockbusters that you got to go see in the theater and you got kind of a mid tier that's like it'll be in a theater, but you'll be able to see it pretty easily on streaming. Well, I think what we often forget is that the theatrical business was not doing super well pre-COVID. Right. Attendance sure. down overall. The interesting right, the kind of juxtaposition is that attendance was down overall the last, you know, kind of per capita in, like uh, concurrently over year over year, but revenue was actually a little bit higher for the movies. And all that tells us is that people are willing to go to theater still, but they're only going for certain movies. Like the, and we can guess what those are gonna be mm-hmm. because we saw Disney in 2019 and Disney owned like 55% yeah. of the global box office if you include box. And so they went, yeah, people are gonna go watch uh, Joker and Avengers and Star Wars. They will go pay money to go do it, um, Godzilla. And I think everything else goes, if we're not going to make the money that we need to make on this, and to your point about transparency, if we're going to be slammed in Variety and the Hollywood Reporter and Deadline for you know kind of coming in low, why don't we just send it to Disney Plus? We can put out a press statement saying it did really well, it broke records without actually saying what those records are, and all of a sudden their streaming looks even better to Wall Street and their shares go up, and they avoid all the kind of embarrassment that comes with it. So I think what we'll see is we'll still put 10, 12, 15 movies in theaters. They will be very specific movies. They will only be there for 45 days and they'll come off. And I think the company, you know, the industry that really loses out on that is the theatrical business. But I don't think the theatrical business is going away. I think it's just going to have to shift in the way that Barnes and Noble has shifted or GameStop is shifting. Yeah, I was thinking you mentioned Alamo Drafthouse. And I was thinking that I I feel like the movie industry was already kind of going there and, and COVID has accelerated it if for no other reason than people have really gotten comfortable watching things in their homes, even more than they already did. And they already were right. But it just, then you're inside for a year and a half and this happens that Alamo draft house, like a theater like that, there's an experience an IMAX theater. It's an experience. It's like more, it's going to get you out of your house because there's more there. And, and I feel like, exclusivity whether it's for 45 days or 90 days or whatever that's good but like that's not enough the old theater industry was very much like we have an exclusive so you're going to come in our terrible theater with our terrible seats and our you know terrible screen and our terrible popcorn because we've got the avengers and i'm not sure that attitude is going to work 
Um, yeah. And, and the theaters that are like, this is what I said about the comic book industry and the bookstores are like this too, which is, you know, the good comic book shops, a lot of good comic book shops and bookstores survived. Not all of them, but a lot of them did. The really bad ones that hated their customers, they all died immediately, right? Yeah. Because they didn't care and they're the first to go. And I feel like movie theaters are going to be like that. The movie theater yeah. chains that hate their customers are going to not make it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly to your experience point. Uh, I mean, I, for the reason I love Alamo, it's where I go for almost 100% of my movies is, you know, like if I'm going to see Green Knight, I would very much like an old fashioned while watching it. And I think that is like a whole thing yep. that you, that the, pre, the pre-show that they do is phenomenal. But I think the other conversation that's going to come out of both the lawsuit and kind of this move with theatrical to day and date if you take someone like Marvel, which has a rabid fan base, one that I'm part of, so I don't use rabid negatively, uh, who will go see a movie over and over and over again in normal times. They'll go four or five times with their friends over the course of a few weeks. If it's available on Disney+, Plus, you still might get them in for one movie. You might get them in for two movies to go to the theaters. But the question then is how many of them are then just buying the movie and rewatching it 10 times at home? How many are sharing it with friends? How many are pirating it? And I think that conversation, which we don't have the information on yet, uh, is the most interesting. It's the repeat viewing, which is already kind of low, but for something like Marvel, something like DC, where it's the difference between you know, 150 million and maybe 175, 180 million, might, mean, might not mean mar- much to Marvel or Disney as a corporation, it's 30 million. That, if you're a star, and that's the difference between whether or not you hit your cat, your cap for what you can, then you get this bonus compared to this bonus, it's going to be a big conversation driver. Yeah, I was thinking about the premiere access thing on Disney and how the way they've structured it is you're basically getting access to that movie forever on Disney Plus when you pay $30. And that's different than renting it, right? Like they could they could have structured it as a 72-hour rental or something or even a one-week rental, but it would be like this is going, you know, it, it's temporary. You don't get to just watch this forever because that's not what it's for. And they chose not to do that. And I, I'll, I'll be honest, I bought Black Widow on, on the premiere access and I loved it. I loved that we were watching that movie and we didn't have to go to a movie theater because we were not kind of comfortable doing that. But, and I would love in the long run, I think I, I have a big TV and a nice sound system. I would love to be able to do that and just never go to the movie theater anymore. Uh, and we don't have any very good movie theaters near me, which is why I say that. But I, I'm kind of resigned to the fact that that business model is not actually going to make those movies exist. So th- that for the big budget movies, I'm still going to need to go see it in the theater if I don't want to wait a month and a half to see it. Yeah. But to your point, I mean, I did, I went uh, kind of opening night, went to go watch the movie, came home, bought the movie again on Disney plus uh, and have watched it, you know, kind of a few times um, since then. So, you know, that's, if I've watched it, I think three or four times on premier access, that's like 60 bucks in tickets, right. From one person alone who's going like, Oh, I'm going to watch. I have a friend over. You haven't seen this yet. At least just throw it. I have it. Let's throw it on. Um, and I think, you know, for Disney, the idea of having premier access, and then to your point is the idea of you owning it, is that encourages them you to then spend $8 a month regardless. Um, and if you're, a, if you're someone who is maybe not someone with kids who Disney Plus is an automatic purchase for, if you're not someone who's a, a diehard Marvel or Star Wars fan, but you're like, oh, you know, I'll sign up for, for this movie. That is maybe the difference in going like, okay, if I cancel after one month after I have this movie, I lose access to it. But if I keep it, I at least have this movie I bought for $30. It's the difference, I think, in Disney going, yeah, we're going to retain some subscribers who are potentially going to leave. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's true. That's a good point. All right. Well, Mike is gone, so I get to be the person to say that we have to take a break. This episode of Upgrade is also brought to you by Text Expander from our friends over at Smile. 
Text Expander removes the repetition from your work so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling errors, and trying to remember the right thing to say. When you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. It's better than copy and paste, better than scripts and templates. Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of the repetitive things you type while still customizing and personalizing your messages. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. So take your time back and increase your productivity. You know, I get emails about sponsoring six colors, and I always answer them the same way. I have the same details. Like, what do you need? I have to say, oh, well, you need to give me a, a little text ad and a longer post, and it has to be this, and it need, I need it by then. And every time I type that, I think this should be a Text Expander snippet, because why am I typing the same thing over and over again? Computers should do that work for us. And that's what Text Expander is all about. Now, as a listener to Upgrade, you can get 20% off your first year. So visit textexpander.com slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. Thanks to Text Expander from Smile for supporting Upgrade and all of Relay FM. All right. I would like to uh, talk to you now about a little streamer check-in. We'll just do a little kind of go around the horn and, and talk a little bit about each of these streamers and sort of what's going on with them. And and um, and since this is Upgrade, we're going to start with Apple TV+. Plus. Ted Lasso just launched. You had a piece about how um, the, that it's a surprisingly in-demand show and that uh, I think what you said was Apple TV Plus started off as what's the point and is sort of turning, you know, turning into something that's a little bit more on the right path. Um, it is it our interpretation here has been that they kind of want to be what HBO used to be, which is all, you know, focus on their originals, have them be high quality and have it be just sort of a destination for good content. And they're not worried about their catalog. They're just worried about like getting enough stuff that they get some critical, like HBO was like, we program Sunday night and it's going to be really great. And that's all that matters. And I feel like Apple TV plus that's sort of the game that they're playing up to now. Yeah, I mean, you're the Apple expert, uh, but I, you know, the thing, the fun thing about Apple TV Plus is they are literally stealing the HBO playbook by, you know, teaming up with Richard Suckler, who was, you know, yeah. ran HBO for a very long time. They are working with the Sony guys who very much admire what HBO has done, and they sold high quality shows to, to their distributing partners. Um, I think the fascinating thing about Apple TV Plus is considering it's only been around for not even two years, and considering that there is not there's i think they have one piece of like licensed content but even then um if you look at their library which is very small the overall demand which just means like how much are people kind of at this point willing to pay because they want to see that show or, or how much are they willing to seek out that show is incredibly high across the entire catalog like for, compared to even disney plus's catalog across it's much higher um and i think to apple's you know to those executives credit over apple tv plus they're picking their shows very specifically. They know what they're trying to build and it's working for them. I do think if they want to scale it to be an, a proper streaming service, they will have to acquire some kind of a library because they don't have what I like to call snackable television. Snackable yeah. television is what you put on before you go to bed uh, or, or when you're on, you're working out, you're watching, you're making dinner. It's what you have on the background. It's familiar, uh, comfortable, lots of it. Like, this is my daughter uh, was visiting us and she put the office on, right? Like exactly. just, just put it on. Exactly. It's it's the snackable thing that makes Hulu and Netflix really work uh, beyond kind of the originals. Um, Apple doesn't have that. 
the, you know, the question I get, I have this conversation with my old boss, um, who, you know, Neil I. Patel is our uh, editor-in-chief over The Verge, and his and I, we, we always can just debate because it was like, does Apple need Apple TV Plus? What do they need it for? Is it actually helping with their overall services bundle? Is it actually, you know, kind of keeping people within that walled garden ecosystem? Is it helping people choose to upgrade to Apple products? Um, and the nice thing about Apple, like Amazon, is that it doesn't matter right now because they have so much money that it's yeah. like, this is an experiment still for us. This, and, and on the experiment side, it's actually going pretty well for them. So I think Apple TV Plus was so easy to write off. And the one thing that is still easy to write off about Apple TV Plus is that we do not know how many are paid subscriptions. We right there's yeah. still going to have free trials. Like we have no idea how many people are actually willing to pay for this stuff. Um, but in terms of the overall demand in their shows and what they are producing in their originals compared to other people, they're actually doing pretty well. And I think that bodes well for them. I think to get people to say, I'm going to pay $5 a month or ideally for Apple, I'm going to pay 20 bucks a month for Apple one. Uh, they need a little bit more. And that, I think that will come in the form of an acquisition of some hmm. library, yeah. similar to what Amazon's doing with MGM. I mean, they've got more content than they did when they launched in that they've got two years of content, but it's still not a lot. Yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, okay. Uh, Netflix, they're the, they're the big, they're the number one. Um, but I mentioned them earlier about like, they just have this pipe of content that just kind of outflows and it's enormous. And is that their strategy is just, we make it up in volume. And also we have games that we are going to put on your phone or something. Like I, I wonder Netflix is so big that on one level they seem unassailable and on another level they seem so boring and not like, I, and I wonder if, if they're like the tortoise and the hare kind of thing where they, the big entertainment, they're so far ahead and yet Disney is coming for them and there's going to be other competition too. And Amazon's got all the money. Uh, so what, what's your take on where Netflix is right now? They're at a very interesting point. So Netflix has hit saturation in um, UK, which is United States and Canada. They are only going to ever lose or gain very little subscribers. And all that means is that they're losing those recurrent and the ones coming back are probably reactivating for something. They've hit saturation point, which is an interesting moment because it means that they are no longer the core kind of country or region that they're looking at. Their whole region that they're trying to grow is EMEA, which is you know, kind of Europe. They're trying to grow um, the Middle East. They're trying to grow Latin America. They're trying to grow um, APAC. And I think what the challenge that lies ahead for them, which is a pretty exciting challenge, I imagine, if you're on that team, is how do you get your big Spanish shows, your big French shows, your big, uh, not Russian, your big um, uh, Mexican series, to travel to the realm of the world to the point that you're going, okay, yeah, no matter where I am, no matter what region this content's coming from, I'm interested in it. Um, that's one challenge. The second one they have that as much as Ted Sarandos, who's their co-CEO, who's their head of their content for a long time, likes to play this down, uh, it's very hard to make franchises. It's it's not easy. Uh, Disney bought their big yeah. franchise. They acquired Lucasfilm, they acquired Marvel, and they said, cool. And it ended up working really well for them. Warner Brothers acquired DC. Um, Netflix is not necessarily in the business of acquiring a lot of uh, studios, but it's not what their game is. And their whole thing is we'll acquire licensing rights, we'll acquire titles, we'll acquire the rights to things, we'll build it. And so I think what you're seeing now is them really trying to figure that out where they have The Witcher, they've got a bunch of other video game stuff, they're doing Pokemon, they're trying to do anime adaptations, they're trying to figure out what they can take and go, okay, we'll turn this into something that is new for us while investing in original series. And all that says to me, is that they're trying to chase their big, big franchise. They only need a Game of Thrones to, to 
but it's easier, much easier said than done. If everyone right. would have a Star Wars, everyone would have a Star Wars. Um, so I think that's their big thing is what's our, our big franchise? What is worth the amount of money that we're going to invest into it? Um, and on the other side of things, they're losing their licensed content and they need it. I think there's a there's a reason people get really excited when Twilight or 30 Rock or Friday Night Lights goes back on the service. And it's not because it's like people have forgotten about it and they're like, oh, I, I can finally watch the show. It is the difference between, oh, I will keep Netflix because I can watch 30 Rock and go to bed at night. It's fine. And just not being able to watch 30 Rock. And I think the perfect example of this, just to end my kind of rant, is everybody thought the office movie to Peacock would make Peacock the biggest service, right? And what it proved with the lack of kind of Peacock paying subscribers that's shown us really, and even kind of active usage subscribers is that people weren't watching. The office was not the number one show on Netflix because it was the number one show that people want. It was the number one show on Netflix because 200 million households were like, oh, I will watch the Netflix. I will watch the, I'll watch the office when I have Netflix and I, when I'm hanging out and it's just easy to watch. Um, and so I think Netflix is going to have to start picking out what it wants to license and really hold on to those and fight for them. Because uh, that's the difference between people going to Hulu and dropping Netflix or people staying on Netflix and dropping Hulu or whatever else. Now, speaking of blockbusters, let's talk about Amazon Prime Video. Um, and, and I'm glad I had it in my notes to say this, and you said it already, which is Amazon, like Apple, is not quite playing the same game as entertainment companies are because the service is sort of a part of their overall strategy, which means that they can spend money kind of without expecting to get it back, which is that's that is a tough opponent if you're if you're their opponent because they they don't value money like you do and that's a problem. So, but they are they have invested, you know, with their with their uh their new leadership, they seem to have found um a better place than than the old leadership did uh but they also got this sort of uh seeking a blockbuster they made the big lord of the rings deal that's in progress um so where where is prime video right now do you think yeah i think just to kind of reiterate what you just said in the way that apple don't very much want services to do well it's why you know luca kind of points out our earnings like we have 700 million paid subscriptions across all of our services um in the way that Apple wants to make sure that's going well, they very much want you to stay in that iPhone ecosystem and upgrade or, or Mac, whatever it may be. Um, Amazon would like you to sh- watch Lord of the Rings. And then, you know, once you're there, please buy toilet paper or a Lord of the Rings book or a Lord of the Rings shirt from us. Because um, all their, their prime is their whole thing. Having the subscription via prime, having the retail business is still their core. I think what Amazon knows is that, okay, if we don't want to uh not just not lose customers if we want to build our subscriber base one of the best ways to bring that in is having a blockbuster tv show where people sign up and then all of a sudden once you've signed up for amazon prime video you have access to amazon prime i would imagine and i'm sure their data shows this that their people are spending a lot more time shopping on prime they're kind of going like oh i'm already here or i'm seeing an ad i'm seeing a commercial and it's like sure i'm just gonna go right i have to buy dog food um, and so I think Amazon's whole play with having a deeper catalog of content, at MGM, and then they can turn that into bigger franchises that maybe bring people in and then actually spending the money in the big battles uh, to acquire the rights to projects they kind of know bring people, um, bring people in. Um, is that It's just that. It's to get people into Prime and then keep them there and, and bring in new customers who might be opposed to Amazon, but they really do want to watch Lord of the Rings, whatever it may be. Um, I think. It could work for them, but money does not equate to success. Uh, it, there's, you know, if you could buy a Lord of the Rings or if you could buy something that seems like Lord of the Rings, kind of based on Lord of the Rings, most people would just take Lord of the Rings 
Um, I think we saw that with Jupiter Ascending, which was Netflix going, we can kind of do a cool superhero show. And people were like, this isn't what I want in a superhero show. This is like, I have Marvel and DC. I don't, I don't need this from you. Um, I think this is Lord of the Rings, but it's it's not the main series. It's, 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 it'll be interesting to see what they do with it. Um, but it's hard to say that Amazon Prime Video is in a bad position because they belong to Amazon. Uh, Amazon Prime Video potentially being spun out, depending on FTC rulings, may be more of a concern. But yeah. until I think that happens, they're part of a, a very big, powerful machine that lets them continue to be in experimentation mode um, and hopefully grow. As a Prime member, I, I often find myself going, oh, right, Prime Video. Like it's the challenge that they have there is that they're not quite a destination, but when there's an original that pops up. Also, I'd say that they've got an interface problem, which is they want to be uh, a uh, store to sell or rent you things and they want to provide you with free things and as somebody who's really used to having all my apps show me what i already get um i find that very confusing right like oh this isn't actually on prime video this is a for rent from prime it's well i also think jason if i can just add to that really quickly i think you just hit the nail on the head which is the biggest issue it's going to face the streaming services aside from content because content is king and then distribution is king uh so you have shows great it's easy to access cool the lack of uh a good ui and ux in the streaming services whether it be hbo max just not loading or, or not running <laughs> whether it be Amazon being impossible to browse whether it be you know disney plus search and hulu search being terrible it's like People, I think like a lot of entertainment companies getting into it, forget that they are, have to also be on the tech side. The advantage to oh, Netflix man. was that Netflix came in at the, the tech, tech company and then hired entertainment guys. And we're like, okay, you guys handle this. You know, Disney bought Bam Tech. They kind of have that. But everyone else is like, you got you to gotta team up with the Silicon Valley teams. Like you need the good tech. Yeah. I had a um, extended rant over several episodes of Upgrade about Paramount Plus. Oh, and yeah. it's terrible inter- interface. And I was trying to find like an episode of 60 minutes and they were all, they had sorted them all by episode title over 25 years or 50 years of content. And it was like, it was impossible to find anything. And they, they did fix that. But I heard from some people who have inside knowledge of Paramount and CBS who are like, yeah, they, you know, basically they don't prioritize the tech stack and you've got all this money you're spending on content and you kind of need to pay attention to your technology or it's if you can't stream it or you can't when you drop Game of Thrones or whatever the next Game of Thrones is and it's high demand, your your stream better not die. Um, and you be people need to find stuff and you need to do autoplay when they want and not when they don't and let them skip around. And it's like table stakes stuff for a good piece of software. And yet some of these incredibly large companies just didn't care. They were so focused on programming the shows, which is important. But yeah. delivery is important too, right? Well, the, the advantage to, to cable, right, was you would go on unless there's a blackout. You turn on like, the channel. There it is. And I think, <laughs> yeah, I think now all these companies are making really, really great television and great films. And it's just, if you want people to see it because you know that there's a demand to watch it, that the people will pay you, you have to be able to then deliver on the easy accessibility. Easy accessibility does not mean that it just transforms to easy availability. And I just, that pipeline, I think needs to be better sorted. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about Disney Plus, but I wanted to at least mention, you know, that machine keeps cranking. I saw the, they had a first look photo of of Hawkeye, the Hawkeye series that's coming this fall with Jeremy Renner and Haley Stanfeld on it. Um, and that's, that. I've been struck watching Loki uh, which Mike and I talked about last week, Loki and uh, and WandaVision both, that um, I, 
I think one of the big, and The Mandalorian, I'll throw that in here too. One of the big questions with Disney Plus was, can they really execute TV, a TV strategy with their film pr- properties and do a good job? And I got to say, I think the answer is yes. I think we've seen with two seasons of The Mandalorian and with those two of those three, I didn't love Falcon and Winter Soldier, but that felt like a Marvel movie turned into a TV show. But Loki and WandaVision both made me think, oh, um, this is serious. Like they got Marvel Studios and and Lucasfilm to get on board and deliver like TV shows that work and that people want to see. And that makes Disney Plus even more dangerous, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the best thing Disney did was um, on the more on the Lucasfilm side, you've got Dave Filoni, and on the TV side, uh, under Kevin Feige, you've got like Michael Waldron, who oversaw Loki, who helped with WandaVision. Right. Jack Schnaker did WandaVision, was kind of around for Loki. Um, was letting kind of TV gods do their thing. You know, there's a joke that Dan Harmon kept saying, we kept losing our talent to Marvel, but how can you be mad? They're going to Marvel. And the smartest thing Marvel did was go, we want to do kind of cool sci-fi superhero stuff that really lands with people in a weird, absurdist way. We're going to tap the Rick and Morty team. Like, like that's just, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And Lucasfilm had Dave Filoni, who created the greatest Star Wars thing of all time in the Clone Wars. Uh, uh, And so... It's like this, this perfect thing where they're going, yeah, we want you to do what you're doing. No limitations, increased budget. You're going to hire whoever you want. And we're just going to put it on Disney+. Plus. I think, you know, the other thing that Disney has that's really going for them is Netflix or whomever has to look out and go, okay, how can we make sure that all of our new series that might not have a strong IP, might not have a strong brand recognition, really play into each other. And for the most part, I think they, they, they're figuring out, you know, Witcher might play into Stranger Things and something that plays into an, another show that comes back that people love. They'll get there. I have no doubt kind of about Netflix succeeding. I don't think Netflix is going to fail at by any means. Yeah. But I think Disney's big advantage is Disney goes, you know, every six weeks, yeah, new Marvel show, new Star Wars show, new Pixar show that uh, both teenagers, adults who kind of grew up with Pixar, so Monster University, right? And yep. kids really love. And then on top of that, they're like, here's a movie. Like, here's stuff uh, that, that we're going to put here. So Disney Plus has the beautiful advantage of um programming slots mm-hmm. like they're just like okay we're going to give marvel three shows a year or four shows we're going to give star wars three shows a year you guys figure out what you want to do and we'll just slot it in and you're and always really you're always cool. watching something on disney plus and that's what they want the nice oh, and even if you're not watching something which i think is absolutely an issue that they're probably gonna run into outside of families uh i think there's never a reason to unsubscribe and i think that for them is great because they can go if we are a necessary if we're necessitating your home then we can charge you more every year and you're just going to pay it. Um, that works out for them. So in other parts of the world, Disney has started putting uh, essentially what is Hulu under a tab in the Disney app called uh, Star after their Star service that they bought that was big in India and is, is big in some other places too. In the U.S., we still have Hulu. Hulu has its own app. What, what ha- What's going to happen with Hulu? Is Hulu... Uh, just playing out the string and will ultimately be swallowed by Disney Plus? Or is there value for Disney in having Hulu be this kind of standalone thing with different kinds of content that reach a different audience that they can bundle with ESPN Plus and make a super bundle? Or is it all just going to be in Disney Plus? Yeah, the big question, the, the answer to that question will happen after Disney pays out the rest of Comcast 10%. Until they pay out Comcast, and anything they do with Hulu that affects the valuation of what they'd have to pay out to Comcast, 
uh, is going to be under massive scrutiny. And so I think their whole thing right now is like, we're going to invest in Hulu, which they're doing a little bit of. Not, I would not say they're investing too much, but they are definitely investing it. They're definitely supporting it. They're using FX to make it kind of a destination for that kind of prestige programming for fans of John Landgraf and what he does. Um, so Hulu's being taken care of. I think until Comcast gets paid out, Disney's in this kind of hold pattern where they're still developing originals. They're still figuring out what they want to do. But if Disney went, yeah, we can take Hulu in the U.S. and make it a, a tab on, on um, Disney Plus. We increase this to, you know, five bucks, six bucks a month. It's now on par with HBO Max. We're getting so much out of it. Um, maybe they do that. That might be something they do. But I think right now, everything that I, uh, back when I was reporting, everything that I heard from inside at Disney was that they're stressing the bundle very hard. That they like the bundle. The bundle for them, you know, kind of is a great move on their part. It's just it, it has people in an ecosystem and talk about a walled garden. It has people in there and they're happy to be in there for, or if they're not, they feel like they have to be in there. Um, so I, I think Hulu will be a TBD. I think we have to see what happens with Comcast, what Disney really wants to do with it post that. And then Hulu will become a very interesting part of the conversation again. Yeah. One of the things that always stopped me was the whole like, well, Disney Plus is family friendly and and Hulu isn't. But with Star, they've shown that they basically have a thing that says for these users, you can set up a lock, you know, and not show that content. And it's not if they want to do it, they can do it. But you're right. There's strategy questions and there's contractual questions. You know, HBO Max has uh, Sesame Street, right? And it's right. like the, the Sopranos. So, yeah, it's, it's like their whole thing is like, we know, we know you don't want yeah. your two year old watching you got user profiles and you got to make yeah. it work. Um, Peacock. So I, and I want to mention here as well, like Peacock's done some originals. They've had, they were supposed to launch with the Olympics last year. The Olympics got moved. They've got the Olympics this year. Um, I'm going to do a minor Olympic rant here just to say that I appreciate that NBC has put almost everything on somewhere, but I think they really blew it with the Olympics this year. And I think it's because it's so um, dysfunctionally uh, like broken up into little pieces that are in different places. And like, there's like five or six universal NBC uh, cable channels that have stuff. And then there's the NBC sports app, which has some stuff from broadcast and cable and some stuff that's original. And then there's stuff on Peacock. And then even on something like Peacock, where you'd expect Olympics on demand, you end up that you can't get a lot of it on demand. It's organizational structure is really weird. And the part that really blows me away is they have these live streaming shows that are actually pretty good and you can't watch them after the fact. They're live on Peacock and then they disappear and you can't get back to them. You can't back up to the start of the show. And so on one level, I find what they're doing kind of admirable. And yet I think they blew it because we live in an on-demand world. And and it goes back to our conversation earlier about uh, UI and and technology is that, you know, if you're watching on TV plus two different streaming apps, or if you're an over-the-top kind of cord cutter like me now, three different apps, um, and you can kind of find it, but it's, it's just so much work. And if you want to find a very particular thing, you can't tell, is it in this app or that app or on this channel or that channel? And, and like, I don't know. So that's, that's my minor NBC rant is I appreciate that they've got the Olympics and they're using it to help launch Peacock, but, um, there's gotta be a better solution to what they're doing. Oh yeah. And, uh, Katie Keck, who's a brilliant reporter over at the verge, she wrote kind of about this and broke down just the, uh, insanity of it all. Um, and I think I don't have any insight into this, but I, I imagine what happened with the Olympics Peacock was NBC had the race, the Olympics a long time ago. NBC did not have Peacock that long ago. And all of a sudden went, we can use Peacock to bring people to watch, we can use the Olympics to bring people to Peacock. 
Um, and I imagine there were some advertisers who were like, <laughs> we don't want to be there. We think more people will watch at a bar or whatever, maybe uh, at home, whatever, maybe on NBC where you don't need a cable. Like you just have NBC playing or on the sports app, you're doing that. Um, and so they went, okay, cool. We'll figure out how we can do kind of original programming with the panels and also what kind of Olympic stuff we can bring over. We'll, we'll negotiate and we'll make it a hub. The mix, the thing they did was their promotion for it was just like Peacock will be the place, the destination to watch everything. And it wasn't at one point I had to watch something on USA and I was like, USA is an actual cable. Like you'd need cable to watch whatever this is. Um, it's, it's a hellscape. It's the word I use another day to talk about it. It is a hellscape. Um, and I get that NBC needs to have stuff on Peacock and, and, you know, there's this overall demand for the Olympics and they want to spread it out. They want to bring as many people into wherever their ecosystem is. I get that, but I think you're just making, uh, people frustrated and that doesn't lead to any good, that does not leave good taste in people's mouths. I will say the thing about Peacock specifically is it has a great, great, great catalog. And if we kind of look at the demand share of the, of the, uh, the entire catalog, so basically how much people are interested in uh, the shows across it, not just original series that are coming, uh, that Peacock is launching, ranks pretty high. Like it seems pretty good, which is not surprising, right? You like, okay, Jimmy Fallon, people like to watch, you've got Law and Order, you've got all the Bravo shows, you've got all these things that NBC makes good television. Um, where they don't really have much demand for is originals. They haven't had an original that's really stuck. And the, the number yeah. one rule with streaming is that uh, um, you kind of new, highly anticipated new movies and TV shows lead to mass acquisition of subscribers. Yeah. Every catalog, snackable content retains your subscribers. They have everything to retain people, but what, they don't have anything to bring people in. So my, my curiosity is to see where the Peacock subscribers end up post-Olympics next quarter or the quarter after that. I would love to know how many of those new subscribers that are coming in for the Olympics stay to watch, whether it's originals, to watch new uh, licensed programming, uh, to watch library programming. Um, I think that's where NBC struggles is there's no reason to sign up for Peacock because if you really want to watch Law & Order, it's also on Hulu because Comcast also has right. right. They have deals. Like it's, so I think Peacock right now is, it's not a necessity and to, to be a part of this game. You have to be a necessity. I think right now they're an option. Yeah. I, I was, I was thinking about how, um, I wonder if the NBC programming, uh, philosophy is a little bit too powerful at Peacock right now and that they're programming it like a network a little bit more than they should. Cause like, okay, I think, I think there's good originals on Peacock. Um, I think it's weird, like AP Bio was one of their first and that was literally, it's a great show, but it's literally canceled by NBC and then saved the next day by another part of NBC. Very strange. And again, if it's got canceled on NBC, it's probably not a must watch on Peacock, but but I'm glad they did it because it's a good show and it, it'll be a catalog and people will find it in 10 years and say, oh my God, why didn't I know about AP Bio? But like they did Rutherford Falls, that's from Mike Schur. They did Girls 5 Eva, that's from um, basically from Tina Fey. Uh, and and the, the Tina Fey content machine. So you got the Mike Schur content machine, the Tina Fey content machine. These are go-to NBC creators. And the shows are fine, but they didn't hit either. And I wonder, is it that an NBC-style sitcom is not what you want to do to have a must-watch thing on a streaming service? I, I don't know, but that's the part that I find befuddling is um, it's not like they haven't done some decent originals. It's that nobody cares. I mean, this is, there's a, there was a point that um, the Netflix executives finally started making their earnings reports, which we had known for a while, and then they finally acknowledged it <clears throat> officially, 
which was not only are we the home for your next favorite original series to watch, we are the home of discoverability, which is a very key word for them. We are the home where you find out about um, Schitt's Creek or you find out about whatever it may be, which is a broadcast show that Netflix goes, there's an audience here for it. We have 200 million homes. People are finding it and they're liking it. You know, I think had Rutherford Falls, had Girls Have Ever landed on Netflix for a season, right? And it had 200 million homes open to it. Possibly it gets more reception than Peacock. Or if Peacock is just people are not looking at it. I think the other thing that comes into play with Peacock specifically is NBC Uni and uh, NBC Uni, various parts of it, still have deals with Netflix where they distribute a lot, a lot of shows to Netflix. And they're like, also, you can have some of our, you know, I think Good Girls was one of them. Um, where that would to Netflix kind of exclusively internationally, they, they had the global rights to it. Um, that show ran three seasons and, and you know, finally got canceled, but it did like d- decently, I believe for Netflix, uh, where it was a, a global kind of um, rights, even if it was in, in the US, it was not. And I think those are gonna be interesting questions that come up with Peacock as it goes international, as it tries to find new originals, is like, what do we sell, right? What do we keep? What do we try to make a Peacock original? And if you're still licensing a bunch of stuff, you're not necessarily putting everything into your own streaming service. And that's almost understandable because you need to still show revenue. Um, I think, you know, we have Netflix who's all in on themselves. You've got Peacock, you've got Warner Media, sorry, you've got NBC Universal, Warner Media and uh, Viacom CBS to an extent, all within their own streaming services, but still big, big licensing kind of partners. And then you've got um, the Sonys who are like, we don't have any interest in like launching a streaming service. We're going to charge 10 times what we want because you want our content. Uh, and so I think it's a very interesting game to see where they are. So the Netflixes and the Disney's pretty happy. They get to be like, yeah, for the most part, we're exclusive. Disney does some licensing, but we're happy. Uh, your Sony are pretty happy. We're licensing out and charging more for it. The other three is like, well, when do you go all in? When do you pull back? And, and how do you balance yeah. that? It's hard to say no to all that money, but you are trying to also build for the long haul. Okay, some real quick hits before we go. Um, HBO Max, where are they now? They, you know, they had their launch. It was a little shaky, but they've also had all those. Uh, they've had a bunch of originals that have gotten some award nominations, and they've done their movie rollout this year. So, where, where, what are you thinking about them right now? Growing their their price. Uh, I still think they're on the up. I'm still uh, very much a a bull on HBO Max. I think they will continue to grow. I think, they, I think Kyler has been great for that company. I think he knows what he's doing. That team, I know somewhat well, uh, and they are doing phenomenal things. Um, I do think that price point is going to hurt them until Netflix hits 15, at which point they can then market it as we are the same price as Netflix to an extent, or we are actually, maybe they go down a dollar, we're cheaper than Netflix. Um, I think that will happen. Netflix's most popular plan is $14 in the US right now. It's only $1 less than what HBO Max is. Um, I think ads are going to help them a lot, bringing in new subscribers who don't want to pay and are fine with watching an ad or two. Um, but I, I think it's hard to bet against HBO right now because of that exact thing where, you know, even if you sign up for HBO specific shows, you sign up to watch White Lotus, you sign up to watch whatever they're doing. There's still a group of people who watch White Lotus and then go, oh, I want to watch the new Gossip Girl, which is HBO Max exclusive. I want to watch the Pretty Little Liars reboot. I want to watch, you know, Slimmy Gomez cooking show. Um, and so I think they're fine. I think them partnering with with Discovery and whatever that ends up becoming, whether it's a bundle, whether it becomes, you know, HBO Discovery Max, whatever it is, uh, I think is going to be an undeniable bundle. Um, but we'll see when that happens. HBO Max, I'm still very bullish on. I think it's easy to, to say, like, I don't know if they can succeed. I, I can absolutely agree with and see all the points against them. But for some, I just think it's hard to bet against HBO right now. I, I think it's going to be hard to bet against HBO in five years. 
How about Paramount Plus? Yeah, Paramount Plus is, um, I think, you know, kind of the one that I'm least uh, sure about. I think ViacomCBS has an amazing library, arguably one of the best libraries out of all of them. They have Nickelodeon, which is a huge asset. They have, you know, BET. They've got all. They've got MTV. They've got programming that people want. I just think if they want them on other streaming services, you know, and I don't think if Paramount, if, if Viacom CBS wants Paramount Plus to succeed, then what they really need to do is amp up their originals and bring people in and then keep their library to retain. And I think that's figuring out what is on, coming up on the deals block, what is, they can license and acquire the rights to in order to do what they need. And they're just not there yet. All their focus is on their brands, but their brands are not Star Wars and, and, and uh, Marvel. Like they're not that, that's on the, Nickelodeon is kind of a sell, but Nickelodeon's a sell and is in, well, SpongeBob's on Netflix, I might watch SpongeBob. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Netflix, I'll watch that there. I don't know many people who are going to sign up for Paramount Plus just for that. They might sign up to watch something new and exciting and then that keeps them there. But I think until Paramount Plus starts to even, you know, Peacock doesn't have many originals that are very in demand, but there are some and they're growing. I think until Paramount Plus gets there and, you know, they're the latest to it to an extent or arguably the earliest because they were CBS All Access. Right. Now with the, oh. uh, now that mom and dad are back together with five <sighs> comments. I was going to say, I mean, they do have one franchise, which is Star Trek, and I pay for Paramount Plus because of Star Trek, and that's it. And that's fine, but, like, that's not enough. Like, that is a nice piece as part of a larger strategy that does not exist. So that's... I, I don't say this as a negative thing. I think I've said this on other podcasts, and, and people always see it as, like, a, as a negative or, or like, I'm dunking. And I, I, don't, I don't mean it. I think it's a positive. I think there are going to be a few companies who, in five to six years, will take a step and back and go, do we want to invest the money that goes into keeping up and running a streaming service yeah. or are we the best at what we, or do we do what we do best, make very good mm -hmm. TV shows and good movies and license them out yep. to everyone else who wants to buy. It's a seller's market. Everybody wants to buy content. I think it's really telling also that I look at Paramount Plus and like they, they have, they claim to have some global aspirations, but the truth is Star Trek is a great example of that. And this goes all the way back to the Les Moonves era you know, they they built that for North America and they sold it to the world on Netflix. And then they also sold like Picard went to uh, Amazon. But basically they they funded their shows by selling all of the streaming internationally to uh, someone else. And, you know, it's not a far step from that to just say, well, why doesn't that show just always go on Netflix? But you would have to abandon your hope of of your own streaming service. And I I, I think you're right. I don't know who it is, and maybe it's Paramount Plus, and maybe it's not, but it seems unlikely that all of these services are going to make it, right? Like, it doesn't, I just don't see it. And so somebody is going to have to fold up their tent at some point or be bought. Yeah. I, and, I, and again, I don't think it's inherently a negative thing. I think Sony is a very fascinating company. Right. Sony, we have television that writes a bunch of stuff. We have movies, we have Spider Man, we have all these things. We don't need a streaming service because we know you need content to compete with all the other guys. Right. And I think at the end of the day, if there's three kind of you know companies that create as enough demand for a streaming service alone by the by their own content, I think Disney is undeniable if, if you have kids and people will always have kids, and also for just Star Wars, Marvel fan, adult fans. Um, so Disney Plus undeniable. Netflix it is just the amount of money they're pouring into it and the hits they are creating and the library that they do have makes them easy and to your point just now 
the international stuff they're doing, the, the locals things they're picking up and going, okay, we can distribute this internationally. And now it's a Netflix original, very important. And I do think, I think, I think HBO Max partnered kind of with Discovery, whatever that ends up becoming, whether it's a bundle internationally, whether it's one streaming service, that's pretty undeniable because it's just got your perfect batch of like prestige entertainment, teen entertainment and unscripted stuff that people love. Um, everything else is a potential. I'm not saying that Peacock and, and Paramount Plus can't take off. They absolutely could. I just also think NBC Universal and Viacom CBS have made a ton of great shows. Same with Warner Brothers Television for other companies. Uh, and that's fine. I think if you can continue making your great shows and owning sports on, on linear for however long that happens and, and figuring that stuff out, becoming a content arms dealer is not a bad situation. I just think they need to have the room to experiment and not fail. I don't like that term, but to experiment and realize, you know what, we don't want to upkeep a streaming service. Like I think these companies are going to figure out, you know, when, when it was, when cable was number one thing, when broadcast was number one thing, you were selling your content. You don't right. have to worry about how it got to people. That was Comcast who now owns in AT&T and they're going, yeah, we'll take care of it. Like, don't worry. Now they're going crap. We have to up, we have to make sure that our, our AWS is down. That means we're down. Like, what does that mean? What's going on? Um, We'll see. I think the hassle will be a lot for certain companies. And if the revenue is just not there and the promise of revenue is not there strategically, it just makes more sense to become the content arms dealer. Right. Sell to the highest bidder. <laughs> well, Julia, thank you so much for spending some time. Go. We broke it. We broke it all down. We solved it all. Is yeah, that great? Figured it out. <laughs> uh, it's all good. ScarJo, call us. We know what's going on. Um, so thank you so much. Where can people find you and your stuff on the internet? Thank yeah, so I'm on Twitter at loudmouthjulia, and I write, you know, kind of still pretty frequently for Parrot Analytics. So I have posts that go out from time to time, but mostly Twitter. The Twitter, your great Twitter follow if you're interested in this stuff. And if you're still listening to this, you are. So uh, thanks again. Thanks for being here on Upgrade. Thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. Hey, Jason. Hey, hey, Mike. Hi, Jason. Are you back from your vacation already? Yes. Okay, well... Since you're here, I had to read that one ad, and um, I'm really much more comfortable if you do it. Can you do the, the, this last yeah. ad? Well, you know what? I'll be happy to, Jason, because this episode is brought to you by Hello. Hello make incredibly comfortable buckwheat pillows. These are not like your average fluffy pillow. They don't collapse under your head and neck. They don't collapse under the weight. Like when you're laying down and it goes all smushy, it gets all hot. That's none of that. Because buckwheat pillows, they stay cool. They give you the support. It truly is a wonderful experience. There's no flipping to the cool side of the pillow anymore because air flows through. Matter of fact, it's all cool. cool. It's all cool. Hello pillows are cool. And you can add and remove filling to suit your needs so the pillow can be just the way that you like it. Now, I'm going to pull back the curtain of the curtain here. Um, I will be getting ready to sleep on a non-hollow pillow for a, for a week or so. I'm not looking forward to it because I know what that experience is like. I love my hollow pillow. It keeps me so comfortable, so supported during the night that when I have to sleep on non-hollow pillows, it makes me real sad. I've been a very, very happy hollow customer for years now. Their pillows are made in the USA with quality construction and materials. They have a certified organic cotton case, which is cut and sewn for durability. And the buckwheat is grown and milled in the US as well. You should try one of these out. 
out. You've got to be curious. Go give it a go. You can sleep on it for 60 nights, and if Hollow isn't right for you, just send it back for a refund. Go to hollowpillow.com slash upgrade right now and get your very own buckwheat pillow. That's H-U-L-L-O-P-I-L-L-O-W.com slash upgrade. And if you buy more than one, they have a special discount of up to $20 off depending on the size you opt for. They have fast, free shipping of every order, and 1% of all profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. So give it a try. If you love it, you keep it. If you don't, just send it back. That's hollowpillow.com slash upgrade. Our thanks to Hollow for their support of this show and Relay FM. Mike, give me some lasers. <laughs> I have way more lasers. Wow. Me, you know, well, I, you've got them stored up. That might be the first time I've ever done that, and it felt really, really good. I so guess I it means that it's time it. for hashtag ask upgrade. Yes, the first comes from Myth Digital, who asks, do you think that it's going to be a big iPhone upgrade year or a small iPhone upgrade year? As someone who has an iPhone 8 Plus, should I wait for the new iPhone or snag a deal on an iPhone 12? I have a theory. I think we talked oh, about this a couple yeah. weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be that classic thing where Apple changed the outside last year. And so this year it won't look every different, any different and people will be like, oh, that's boring. And on the inside, it's going to have some wild stuff that's like way better internally in terms of camera or processor or who knows what else sensors, what other stuff they're going to do. So that's going to be, I feel like that's not a bad prediction to make to say that I think it will look the same and actually be way better on the inside because that's, you know, it's sort of a different set of motivations. Some people are motivated by looks. Some people are motivated by specs. They can't change the look every year. They can change the specs every year, more or less. So that's my guess. Um, what do you think about the the great philosophical question of do I get a deal on a on an iPhone now if you can find a deal or if you wait and pay full price for the latest and greatest? I think hmm, for this year, if you could imagine or if your budget would allow that you would be getting a pro phone, I think it's going to be a big upgrade. Yeah. Because I think that the ProMotion display, which is very likely to come to this year's phone, it would be I would be flabbergasted if they didn't make it work this time. Right. Uh, I think that's going to make a big, big, big change to the iPhone experience. Maybe always so, on display too, right? That's a exactly that could be a really yep. nice feature, and probably on the Pro phone. Yeah, I think you're right. If you're if you're looking for a, just a twelve. Uh, and you can get a deal, and you're not really going to buy in the pro line. You know, if you're if you're coming down on that side of the fence of of features and uh, price, I I think you could probably just go ahead. I think it would be worth getting the deal because the difference will probably just be like better camera, and like the camera is always better. If you're coming from an eight plus, the camera is going to be so much better for you going to the twelve that I would just go to the 12. But if you think that you would be tempted to go for a 12 Pro like that, that and that might be in your budget, I reckon I reckon even 11 Pro, uh, sorry, 12 Pro to 13 Pro or whatever it's going to be, yeah. I think that's going to be a pretty big upgrade even this year with that screen. I think that's going to be awesome. Yeah. Ragad asks, many people believe that the M1 and the iPad Pro creates a perception that it is a grown-up computing device. What are your thoughts on the perception the M1 uh, in the iPad? Wait, hold on. Can I can I go, give another go on that? Yes. I want to just get rid of that for now. 
Many people believe the M1 in the iPad creates a perception that it is a, quote, grown-up computing device. Do you think it makes the Mac... Wait, what? Hang on. Does, does the Mac line make the iPad... Oh, yeah, this is a confusing question, isn't it? I, I misunderstood what this question was asking me, and now I don't understand what this question means. So I think I'm just going to... So, write my own oh, well, half of the question. So here's what it is. The idea, we've said that the by putting the M1 in the iPad, it makes it seem like a grown-up computing device because it's using a Mac chip. And Ragad is asking the reverse, which is, does oh, having it, it in the iPad mm-hmm. give any kind of like cachet to the Mac? Or vice versa. All right, cool, I got it now. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Interpreting <laughs> Ask Upgrade <laughs> Questions with Mike and Jason. Third time's a charm. Many people believe that the M1 in the iPad creates a perception that it is a grown-up computing device. What are your thoughts on the perception that the M1 in the iPad would then give towards the Mac? So, like, the question being, I guess, does it make the Mac seem better or worse because it shares cooler, a chip with the iPad? Or modern? Or cooler or not, right? Like, it's, I, I, I could imagine some people uh, going, oh, this is just an iPad chip or this is just an iPhone chip. I bet there are people that are like that. I think the I think that there if if we take this question as being does the iPad rub off favorably on the Mac as well I think the answer is yes Apple has spread that out over time but if you remember when the uh you know a- Apple has used like the MacBook rolled out and they said the that 12 inch MacBook and they're like this is from the people who 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 made the iPad right and they've been trying to bring iPad like features to their laptops uh, especially and i mean the iMac is like a giant ipad too when you look at it right like i think that i think that yes uh regard here has has come up with a good way of looking at this which is what apple's trying to do is have the m1 and the ipad be like oh it's serious it's like uh like a mac chip and on the mac side i think maybe not with the chip so much but more broadly apple does try to have it be like we want to use what we've learned in the iPad and the kind of that kind of uh, attitude and the cachet, if there is any, with the iPad to be like drive that into Mac design so that the Mac feels more cutting edge or modern or like a use the some of the judgments we make, some of the criteria we use to judge mobile devices on Macs, especially laptops, which I think is good, right? Because I think that smartphones and tablets have really raised our expectations for what a mobile device is and i find myself more and more getting frustrated i love my m1 macbook air i think it's really great i do think it benefits from being more ipad like in terms of battery life and things like that but there are still things that it doesn't do that the ipad does that frustrate me like why does it do it this way and the answer is always because computers used to do that and so i think that apple philosophically apple wants the mac and especially uh the macbook line to be more ipad like not in the way you're thinking which is make it an ipad but in the way it behaves in terms of some features so like the one that i always complain about is on my ipad if i close the cover and put it to sleep and i'm listening to music in my headphones from the ipad the music still plays and if you close the cover your your macbook air the music stops well why Mm -hmm. is that it's because well that's Mm -hmm. how sleep works on computers and the answer should be shouldn't work like that anymore right why why why, other than that it's been that way for more than a decade, is that the way it is? And and so 
like I think the iPad and the iPhone have really good influences on the Mac. I don't think necessarily it's to answer this question. It's the M1 that's doing that. But I do think that there are some really positive influences the that the uh, the iPad and the iPhone make on the Mac. And Patrick asks, which body part, Jason, would you trade for an iPad OS version of BB Edit? I I would love to see an iPad OS version of BB Edit. <laughs> Not that much. But the, but the truth is, there are a lot of other text editors. The, the great yeah. thing about BB Edit is it's a text editor. I can use other text editors to do what I want on iPad OS. I, I might have given up like the last knuckle of my pinky finger on my left hand for it early, early on in the iPad days. But at this point, you know, between one writer and drafts and, and some of the, the scripting tools that are over there, I'm okay. I'd love to see it because I think that having more connection between BB edit on the Mac and on the iPad would be nice, like syncing settings and having some more of the features that are built into BB edit that I miss in some of those apps. But I wouldn't trade a body part for it, Patrick, at this point, it would be great, but it's, it's uh, not enough. There's, there are other options while lesser that are good enough for this. If you'd like to send in a question for us to answer on the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, or you can use question mark AskUpgrade in the RelayFM members Discord, which you can get access to if you sign up for Upgrade Plus. Go to getupgradeplus.com and you'll get longer ad-free versions of every episode of Upgrade. If you'd like to find Jason online, you can go to sixcolors.com and he is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thanks to Hollow, Smile, and Pingdom, and also whoever Jason's guest was. Yes, it was Julia Alexander. Summer of fun! Summer we'll fun. be back next time. Until then... Say goodbye, Jason Snow. Say goodbye, Mike Hurley. Goodbye, Mike Hurley. <laughs> <laughs>